0: Good day and welcome to Eyewitness Good News, the first name in good news coverage. Today is a great day as we continue our in-depth coverage on the life of the recently deceased Jesus of Nazareth, who some claims the promised Messiah, even the Son of God. You've heard the buzz, you've heard all the rumors, and it's time to get the facts. Luke, the physician, has a reputation for carefully researched reporting. and This promises to be no exception. He has read the written accounts, traveled to the original locations, and interviewed eyewitnesses. And now that his careful investigation is over, he is ready to share his orderly account with all our viewers. For the details of his research, please find a copy of his excellent book. But for now, we will send you over to the field for today's top story. Thanks again to Luke for his excellent research, and thank you for tuning in. As always, this is Josh Smith for Eyewitness Good News. Well, good morning, church. It is great to be together.
1: My name's Ethan. I'm one of the ministers here, and I am so glad that you are here with us today. Uh, we are working our way through the book of Luke. Uh, the book of Luke is one of the books that we call the Gospels. There are four Gospels. They tell the story of the life of Jesus. Uh, Luke is the third of these four uh, Gospels. Maybe you've taken on the challenge to try to read the book of Luke by Easter. You can do it, even if you haven't started yet. You could start today, you'll be fine. Two hours, tops. You'll read through the whole book of Luke. Maybe you could do that by Easter. We've learned a few things um, about the book of Luke so far. We're a few weeks in here. Uh, we started by talking about the nature of the book of Luke. Uh, the book of Luke has this interesting little um, kind of prologue or preface that tells us how he wrote it. And it's just so fascinating. We, we discovered that, that Luke was a skeptical guy who wanted to know what happened. So he researched what happened. He interviewed the eyewitnesses. He read the written accounts. Why? He says, so that you can be confident about what happened. This is the book that is written by a well-researched skeptic. Who wanted you to know what happened in the life of Jesus. And, and, and he starts with the birth narrative. And Luke uses the birth narrative to focus our attention on who Jesus is. He, he is the son of God. He is God with us. He is the savior God would send to rescue the whole world. He is the promised Messiah that God had said would come as this anointed king to rescue God's people. Then he turns and begins to tell the story of Jesus' ministry. We saw last week that um, when Luke says he has an orderly account, he doesn't necessarily mean chronological, he means organized organized to teach us what we need to know about Jesus. And so he starts, we looked last week at Luke chapter 4, where he starts the account of Jesus' ministry by focusing us on what Jesus is here to accomplish. And we we discovered that it was bigger than you might have thought. Jesus is here to establish the kingdom of God. And this means that he is the victorious king who will defeat all of God's enemies. It means that he has a plan for, for rebels like us to become citizens eternally in God's kingdom. And it means that he has a way of life for us to live. And then today we move forward. We're kind of looking at what can we learn from chapters seven, eight, and nine. And we don't have time to talk about everything, but I'm going I'm to look at chapter nine, because there's an interesting turning point in the ministry of Jesus that happens in chapter nine. Up till chapter nine, it's all been about who is Jesus and what is he trying to accomplish? He is the king and he's trying to establish the kingdom. But then in chapter nine, there's a quiz. There's a question that gets asked in chapter nine that starts to move the story forward once again. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, turn to Luke chapter 9. Uh, if, you, if you don't have one with you and want a paper Bible, there should be some under the chairs in front of you. Just grab one so you can have one. If you don't own a Bible, just grab that Bible and take it home with you. Just grab it, put your name in it, it's yours. We'll restock the chairs before next week. It'll be all right. We'll make sure there are enough Bibles. We want you to have a Bible. Maybe you can pull it up on your phone. Because in Luke chapter 9, there's a quiz. And I, I want you to check this out. Verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, you're one of the prophets of long ago, come back to life. So it's sort of a a multiple choice quiz. We got a few possible answers that you could give to the question. And then he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? I just just want to let you know for a second, this is a really important spiritual question. This isn't just an important question for Peter. It's an important question for every one of us. Who do you say that he is? If you have his identity wrong, you will misunderstand what he came to accomplish. You will misunderstand how you are a part of that. You'll, you'll misunderstand so much if you get the answer to this question wrong. So he asks, who do you say that I am? And then Peter answers him. And here's what Peter says is his answer. He says, you are God's Messiah. And that is the right answer. Uh, Peter gets it right. And getting this answer right means a lot in this moment. It means for him to say, you are God's Messiah, means he knows who Jesus is. But it also means he knows what Jesus is trying to accomplish. He paid attention on that day in Nazareth when Jesus said, this is what I am here to accomplish. Because if he's the Messiah, that means he is God's anointed king come to establish God's kingdom. And in this moment where Jesus asks the question and Peter gets the answer right, like he must have been like on cloud nine. Because he's like, I got the answer right and I have attached myself to the winning team. Like I am part of the king's coming kingdom. It's gonna be awesome. But... As soon as that is established, remember the first thing Luke wanted us to teach us is who is Jesus. The second thing he wanted us to teach us is what is Jesus here to accomplish, to establish the kingdom of God. As soon as Peter knows those two things, Jesus moves on to the next lesson. He tells them how he is going to accomplish this mission God has given him. And when they hear, What his plan is? They are—they're shocked. They're overwhelmed. Now, now, some of you today—we're going to read on in a second. Some of you today aren't going to be shocked uh, because you've heard about the plan so many times and you've heard the strategy so many times. You've forgotten that it is even shocking. So, but just just today, just try to let yourself just be a little shocked. Because this is God's anointed king. That's who he is. He is here to establish the kingdom of God. That's what he's trying to do. To make a way for rebels to become citizens and then to lead all those citizens in a new way of life. This is the accomplishment he's here to accomplish. And when they're clear on that, he pulls his disciples aside and he tells them how he's going to do it. He, he warns them, don't tell anybody. But here's what's going to happen. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. This remains... Staggeringly shocking that the Messiah of God, the anointed king of God's eternal kingdom, is going to allow himself to be humiliated and killed because that is the will of God for his life and so that he might make a way for rebels to become citizens. We later learn in the Gospel of Luke that just before his death, Jesus would pray. He said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. We, we don't expect a king to act like this, do we? Kings are supposed to pursue their will and their desires and for their indulgence. And here's our king who says, here's the plan. Here's the plan. I am the king you were waiting for. I am going to establish the kingdom of God. I am going to defeat all of God's enemies. I am going to make a way for rebels to become citizens eternally in the kingdom of God. And the method, the strategy by which I am going to accomplish this is to willingly allow my enemies to humiliate and kill me so that God might raise me from the dead. My strategy to accomplish all this is to put the will of God before my own. This needs to remain shocking to us. Because everything we hear from the world around us is that the way to exercise power is to dominate others and destroy others. The way to achieve the power you want is to take the power you have and use it to acquire more power. And Jesus says, my way is to lay down my life. And then the surprises just keep coming because Jesus does the most ridiculous thing. He not only says, this is my strategy for for accomplishing the will of the one who sent me. He then says, I expect it to be your strategy too. It's unbelievable. Look what he says next. Right after he says, yep, you got it. I'm the anointed king. I'm going to reign eternally. And my method is going to be to willingly lay down my life. He immediately says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross every single day and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Luke teaches us not just who he is who Jesus is, the promised king, not just what he's trying to accomplish, establish the kingdom of God, not just how he will accomplish it through sacrifice and humility, but he also teaches us that that is the model for our lives. Jesus says, this is it. I mean, some of you are here today. uh, Probably a lot of you are here today because you want to be a follower of Jesus. That's why you're here. You would would say, I am a follower of Jesus. That's awesome. And that's why you're here. And that's why this worship is part of your rhythm because you're a follower of Jesus. And this is what Jesus says. If you want to be one of those things, if you want to be a disciple, a follower of mine, then deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Because if you want to save your life, well, you'll end up losing it. But if you lose, lose your life for my sake, you'll, you'll, you'll save it. You'll save it. I remember as a kid, I, I can't even remember who told this to me. I, I think it was a family member, but I have lots of family members who could have said this to me. It feels like something my grandma would say, but I really I have no idea who said this to me. But I remember one time they, they gave me this image. They said... Um, Every morning when you wake up and you leave your your room, your your bedroom to go out into the day, there by the door is a is a throne and a cross. And every day you get to decide which one you're gonna carry with you. Like, are you gonna carry the throne? Planning to sit on it as often as possible? As if you were the king of your own life, are you going to carry the cross? Is every day you, you get to decide. I've just had that image with me my whole life. I can't even remember who, who said it to me. And the thing I want you to observe, put that back up just for a second. I want us to look at that just for a second. The thing I want you to observe is just how very different this is from the kind of advice you'll find basically anywhere else you turn in our world. I mean this is just this is not the advice that you're given for how to order your life and how to pursue a life of joy and peace and fulfillment. This just isn't the message that's out there. And, and so I just want to put an idea in your head, okay? Just kind of be let this rattle around in your head a little bit. If Jesus is right that this is the way to follow him. If Jesus is on to something that this is the way to follow Jesus then this means that almost all the advice you get in life about how to organize your life is bad advice. Because almost all the advice we ever get is different than that. Like most of the advice you encounter about how to seek joy and goodness and fulfillment and peace and meaning in life is different from that. And so if Jesus is on to something, then maybe there's a lot of bad advice out there. I just want to think about that. 'Cause this is not a mistake. It's not like this is Jesus accidentally said this. He says this too in the Bible all the time. In fact, just to look down in the same chapter you got your Bibles open, look later in Luke chapter nine. Luke chapter 9, verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he'd just healed some people, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's like, I know it looks awesome, and here I am here healing people, and everybody's cheering you. I'm just saying things are about to get bad, and I'm going to let it happen. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. They were afraid to ask him about it. So so an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child, had him stand beside him. He said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. For whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is the least among you who is the greatest. That's what Jesus says. He he, he, he says, I'm the victorious king who will defeat all of God's enemies. And I'm going to establish the eternal kingdom of God. And the method by which I'm going to do that is to humble myself, consider not my own will, but the will of God, and submit to a humiliating death at the hands of my enemies. And then he immediately says, and that's my plan for you too. Like that's, that's the plan. He says, I know that out there in the world, the greatest is the greatest. In the kingdoms of this world, the greatest is the greatest. But in my kingdom, the least is the greatest. Other places in Luke's gospel he will say, the one who serves is the greatest of all. He says, in the kingdom, I'm setting up the the new way of things, the one that's going to last eternally. That's the way it works. He says, all of your worldly instincts about who is the greatest and how to become the greatest are, are, are just wrong. They just don't apply to my kingdom. And my kingdom is the one that's going to last. Now, We could look at these texts in Luke chapter 9, and we could talk about a lot of stuff. There's a lot of places to go. Uh, We could talk about theology out of these texts. We learn a lot about the love of God for us, that God would send his son to be sacrificed for us. We learn about God's love. We learn about the character of Christ, that Christ himself, Lord of the universe, chooses service over dominance. We learn a lot about the character of Christ. We learn about lordship from this text, right? That we are to willingly put down the throne of our life and cake up a cross, deny ourselves. We learn about repentance in this text. That if you want to save your life, lose it for his sake and he will save it. Uh, We learned some stuff about apologetics in this text, which is really interesting. The, The Roman world was filled with stories about victorious generals and victorious emperors who because of their dominance and power were kind of considered to be divine, right? They proved their divinity with their victories and their dominance over their enemies. But this kind of story to claim that the proof of his divinity was not his dominance over his enemies, but his willing submission to their humiliation and cruelty. This is a totally unique story. It isn't the kind of lie you would have made up if you wanted to impress your Roman friends with your new invented God. And I actually think the very nature of the story of Jesus speaks to its Truth, and so we could talk for a long time about apologetics and how this very story encourages us to trust it. But I, I want to focus our attention somewhere else today. As we consider what Jesus is teaching us, not just about who he is and what he's here to accomplish, but about how he will accomplish it, I want to think about just how we are called to live. How are we called to live? Because I am concerned that the lesson of this text is hard to remember. Part of the reason I think it's hard to remember is because I have trouble remembering it. And maybe it's not just me. Look back with me, Luke 9, verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever is seeking to save their own life, ends up watching it slip through their fingers. But whoever loses their life, for me, will find that it is saved. This message is is hard to remember for so many reasons. Um, In part, it's hard to remember because we simply don't want to remember it. We would rather forget Jesus said this. Like it'd be way easier if we could just forget that Jesus teaches that self-sacrifice is the path of following him. It's hard to remember because obedience is difficult and disobedience is easy. And when we disobey, it's super nice to pretend like we forgot the rules in the first place, right? Like, I didn't hear you say that. I didn't know, I didn't know. Like, I I didn't know. Like, that's nice. But I think one of the reasons it's hard to remember is because so many persuasive voices are telling us the opposite. And after a while, they just sound really smart. Now, I know some of these voices are silly. Like, do you remember the old sprite commercials? I love these sprite commercials Obey Your Thirst. I love those Sprite commercials and and that's fun. And it's just Sprite and Sprite's harmless. Everybody go drink Sprite, right? If you want a Sprite, drink a Sprite, right? But, But think of the message of that, obey your thirst. Let your desires have dominion over the direction of your life. That can quickly go from an advertisement for lemon sugar water to something much more serious. I try to not spend too much of my life on social media because it's sort of a cesspool. We all know that. But I spend a little bit of time on Instagram, you know. And, and I'm just staggered by the capacity of people to give terrible life advice. Just like with a straight face. Like this boom. They just give it like this is good advice and it's terrible advice. Uh, one, of the, one of the messages that I just see all over Instagram Sometimes people say it directly and sometimes not so directly, is this message, something like this. I can find happiness by indulging my desires. Like that, this is a reliable route to joy and contentment and meaning in life if I indulge my desires. Now I don't mean I don't mean a sort of healthy balanced observation that it's okay to take a nap every once in a while and eating some ice cream is okay on occasion and and you know that everybody should, you know, you know, go ride a mountain bike or take a day off every once in a while. I don't mean that. I mean this sort of steady drumbeat that the route to joy is by indulging your desire. It shows up when people say, if only I could take all the vacations I want to take, then I would feel happy about my life. If only every day were a spa day, you know, if only I was always on my mountain bike, if only all I did was golf, then I would feel the kind of contentment and satisfaction in life that I'm craving. It it, it takes, it manifests itself in even more dangerous forms. I have this thing I do. I'm not super proud of it, but I also don't plan to stop. So whatever, I don't know. But I I occasionally, I occasionally I'll go read advice columns. Just from newspapers and men and and online things all over, all over things, you know. And, And I do it. As a discipline, I'm not, I actually don't take much joy in it. I do it as a discipline because I want to know what does the current wisdom of the world sound like? When people are out there giving smart advice like they know things, what does the wisdom of the world sound like? And again, I just want to say when I go read these advice columns out there that people are paying attention to and taking seriously, it is staggering how directly unbiblical the world's advice is and how unlike what Jesus just told us it is. I, I, not long ago, I read an advice column. It was this marriage counselor, you know, it was kind of advice for troubled marriages. And I was interested because I care about troubled marriages. And I think God cares about troubled marriages, And I think God wants to save and protect troubled marriages. And so I was like, okay, what's the advice out there? And it was four or five questions that had written in and they kind of gave slightly different advice per question But basically, the central theme of their advice was this. If your marriage partner can't meet your desire for blank, you should find another option. And they they had this one line they used more than once. Don't pretend you can be happy without having your desires fulfilled. I just want to be clear. That is staggeringly terrible advice. It's just staggeringly bad. First of all, no human partner can ever fulfill all your desires. Like nobody would ever stay married, which is probably done. And I want to be clear, this was not about abuse or neglect. If you're in a situation where you're being abused or neglected and none of your needs for, for, for life are being taken seriously at all, you go get a marriage counselor, you talk to a pastor, you get help. I'm not talking about that. But just this, this principle that was being presented that the way to find true and lasting joy was to figure out what your desires were and let your desires just guide everything about you and indulge every desire. And there's so many things wrong with this. One is that the more you do this, eventually you will do something foolish and cruel to another person in order to get your own desires met. If your desires are king, you will eventually injure somebody else and wound somebody else in pursuit of that. The other part of the problem is that it just doesn't work. Human desires are cavernous. They just grow and they always outgrow our capacity to indulge them. Nobody has ever achieved lasting joy and peace and meaning through the indulgence of desire and then your desires grow beyond your capacity to fulfill them and you crash and this is why the bible teaches us directly to do the opposite of that first john 2 puts it this way do not love the world or anything in the world If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, right here, before I finish, I do need to just kind of stop and I want to be really careful, okay? Because some of us are struggling today with the opposite of the problem I've been drawing our attention to, okay? Some of us have developed a self-destructive habit of never taking care of our own needs and not really thinking about our own need for rest, for safety, for peace, and you have interpreted Jesus' call to self-denial as a call to self-destruction, okay? So I want to be careful. If that's your situation, then no, you should not be ignoring all of your needs for health and rest and laughter and whatever. If that's what's going on, then you need to get a friend to help you distinguish between genuine needs and unhealthy self-indulgence. Likewise, if you're in a relationship where your needs are systematically being ignored through either neglect or abuse, you need to get a a pastor or a marriage counselor who can help you discern that, okay? I want you to be healthy. I want you to do what is needed to be healthy. I want you to rest and play and laugh and occasionally, you know, have a round of golf or a spa day or eat a cookie, you know? But I also... I must teach against this very present and well-communicated and persuasive lie that we can find lasting happiness and joy in life by indulging the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the desires of life. Because you can't. It doesn't work. The world and its desires are passing away. How can you be eternally satisfied by something that is not itself eternal? And this lie that we can find the meaning we long for in life by indulging the desires of the world, it's part of a bigger lie. The lie that anything in this world can satisfy the human soul. The bigger lie that if only we were in charge and we were on the throne and if we left the cross at home and took the throne with us into every room we entered and sat down on it and reigned, that somehow the world would be better and our lives would be better. Some of us today are wondering why we are so exhausted and unfulfilled by life and it's because you are trying to find in the world... What can only be satisfied by God? How did John put it? The world and its desires are passing away. No wonder Banjo-Kazooie didn't satisfy the soul of Nick Offerman. No wonder doesn't actually work to spend your whole life traveling, and then I'll finally be fulfilled. To spend my whole life pursuing one sexual partner after another, then I'll finally be fulfilled. To spend your whole life pursuing one more, you know, conquest, one more capturing of a moment of satisfied desire. Well, because all that stuff's passing away. How did Jesus put it? Well, if you want to be my disciple... Whoever wants to be my disciple will have to deny themselves and every day choose the cross and follow me. If you work really hard to save your life, it'll slip through your fingers because what you're trying to save is fundamentally temporary. But if you give up that which is temporary for me, then I will save it for eternity. This is what's so startling. Dying to self, it turns out, is a reliable strategy for saving your life. Isn't that odd? It turns out self-sacrifice, self-sacrifice is actually more likely to bring a sense of fulfillment than self-indulgence. Isn't that odd? It turns out deciding to serve each other is a more effective way to save a marriage than insisting that your desires are met. Isn't that interesting? Everybody makes a list of their desires and you go to your partner and say, I need you to do this. And they say, great. Well, I need you to do this. That's a pretty terrible way to save a marriage. But if you go and say, I'm going to just serve you in every way I can. And they say the same. I literally have never seen a marriage where that was happening. Where each was trying to serve the other that wasn't saved. I've never seen that happen. The lust of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. And I don't mean, we're not just talking about sexual desires. All All the kind of fleshy indulgence for pleasure and stuff they will never satisfy because they are temporary. The desires of our eyes, our dreams and ambitions in this world for power and dominion and success and wealth, they will never satisfy because they are temporary. So if you were to organize your life around such things, then at the end of your life, you are guaranteed to be left with nothing because you have organized your entire round, your life around things that don't last. Clinging to this world and indulging its desires is a reliable strategy for wasting your whole life. But in contrast, if you order your life around the call of God, Your labor in the Lord is never in vain. And when you lay down your life for the sake of Christ, he alone is able to save it. Jesus says, this is who I am. I am the king come to save victorious over all God's enemies. This is what I'm doing. I'm establishing the kingdom of God, making a way for rebels to become citizens and live eternally in that kingdom. This is how I'm going to do it. I'm gonna die on the cross, put the will of my father above my own, and then he invites you to do the same. Let's pray together right now. Oh, gracious God, we need a mighty outpouring of your spirit for us to even begin to live obediently to this calling. We need a mighty work of your love. Anchor us again in the promise that you alone are sufficient to save and the things of your kingdom are the only things that are eternal. And then give us the strength to turn away from the temporary to lay down our foolish attempts to sit on the throne of our lives and instead pick up the cross you have prepared for us and trust that when we lay down our life for you, you are sufficient, you are sovereign, and you are willing to save us. Let us trust in this today as we live like you have taught us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.